Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed wherever you are using the Newcastle Libraries app. So why not put borrowing at your fingertips? We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we live, the Awabakal and Waramai people, who were the first storytellers of this nation and are the proud survivors of more than 200 years of continuing dispossession. This is the Broken Chain series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real and local artist Damien Lenane. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed throughout the series are solely attributed to the host and guests of the program and do not reflect the official policy or position of the City of Newcastle. Hello and welcome to Broken Chains, a prison podcast. My name is Damien Lenane and I was sentenced to two years imprisonment in November 2015 for crimes the sentencing magistrate described as vigilante action. Broken Chains is recorded on the traditional land of the Awabakal people and I'd like to pay my respects to elders, especially considering how greatly our prison system impacts on Indigenous people to this day. Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people per capita on the planet. They are jailed at 13 times the rate of non-Indigenous Australians and make up over 28% of the prison population, despite only accounting for 3% of the Australian population. Every week on Broken Chains, we're going to talk about a different aspect of the prison system. We'd like to talk about Indigenous overrepresentation in the system at some point, but for our first episode today, we're going to be talking about prison labour, or as I prefer to think of it, modern slavery. Joining me to discuss the issue today is another former prisoner, Courtney. Yes, it was broken. All right, hello, Courtney. Uh, thanks for being our first guest on the podcast here. Oh, hey, Damien. It's actually a little bit nerve-wracking being the first one. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's my first podcast as well, so, uh, yeah, I'm feeling that a little bit too. Uh, hopefully it goes pretty well. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're comfortable sharing about prison, for example, um, where you were and uh, how long you were there for. I was a first-time offender in my late 30s, which was a massive surprise to me. I was an executive in the insurance and finance industry and made a massive, massive mistake, which cost me my career and I was sentenced to three years in prison. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> it's funny because um, I went into the prison system for the first time when I was 29 and considered that late for me. I actually remember one day a, a guy came up to me in the yard. He was all about about 20 and we just started chatting. He said to me, oh, like, oh, how old are you, bro? And I was like, oh, I'm 29. And he's like, is your first time in? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, man, that's mad. You made it to 29 without being arrested. And he was <laughs> honestly impressed. And I um, that was like one of those surreal moments. I'm like, wow, this, this is a whole new world. So I, I guess it must have been a bit the same for you if you'd never been in that kind of environment before. Oh, never been in that kind of environment, never been in trouble, just one fatal error of judgment. You know, it, it completely changed who I was. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I completely know the feeling because I mean, I um, I'm actually happier with my, my life now. I was I was pretty lost before I, I went in, and probably like my stories for another day. But uh, yeah, I can definitely you know know how how it completely changes your life. So wh- whereabouts were you incarcerated? Even if you just want to tell us what state, like. 
Yeah, sure. It was in Queensland, and I went to three of the prisons, well, the prisons, I guess, in, in Brisbane. So I went to Brisbane Women first, and then um, I worked my way through. I was only there for probably five weeks, which was fantastic because that was uh, pure health um, at Brisbane Women. So about five weeks, and then I went down to the farm, which is at Namambar. It's in the beautiful Narang Valley down on the Gold Coast, and it was actually if you're going to go to prison, you really want to go to a farm. <laughs> you know, you definitely have all of your liberties, you know, taken away, but it's much nicer to wake up and, you know, be able to see beautiful surroundings and actually see stars at night time. Makes me sound like a bit hardcore. Like I, I, I technically went to six different prisons, but I was only there in prison myself for 10 months. Uh, I got moved like three times on transit to where I was classified to. And then I had to be transferred at one point to a medical appointment, which meant I had to stop at another prison on the way. But I was mostly at a prison farm myself at Glen Innes. And um, yeah, so I, I can definitely appreciate that. I tell people this and they, they don't believe me. Like we didn't even have a fence around our prison. Just we just we had borders, like you couldn't cross the road and at one point there was a yellow line painted on the ground that you weren't allowed to step over. But the prison itself, there was a lot of frustrating things, as I'll probably get into in a, in a minute. The the accommodation and like the setup itself, like it, it could have been like a one star. Like you, you, if you if you paid to stay there, you wouldn't have been happy. But it wasn't too bad, I guess, in terms of the facilities and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, ours, the number bar was quite similar to that. It was kind of more like, you know, when you're in grade seven and you go on that grade seven camp and you're yes. gone for like seven days or whatever, it was kind of like that. We had dongers and there was like a mess hall where you would go and eat and, and muster up and things like that. But um, it wasn't, and, and I'm hesitant to say it wasn't that bad because, you know, when you say prison wasn't that bad it's kind of like oh gosh because it was you're away from your family you're away from everything that you know you're away from everything that you normally do but the actual place itself wasn't that bad yeah no I completely understand and, and what I found really frustrating in prison was I, I went in and I just finished my undergraduate degree and I wanted to start a master's yeah, the prison told me pretty quickly that that, that wasn't a possibility. In, in New South Wales, uh, we're not allowed to have computers in cells. And we had a computer room, but because of budget cuts, it could only be opened for two hours a week. And that isn't enough time to study at university. There, I was considered too low risk of reoffending to be eligible for rehabilitation. And there was no therapy for anyone because it was minimum security. I'm not sure if other classifications are different. You did your time easy there, but there was nothing constructive to do. And our prison farm, it was a lumber yard. You had work to stay there, and uh, basically the, the whole prison just revolved around making pallets for James Hardy, which was what we were doing there. So our farm, it wasn't a working farm as such. There was cows and there was some other things, and there was a massive big uh, garden. So we, they were trying to be sustainable so that we would grow our own fruit oh, and right. vegetables and things like that. Hmm. Yeah, so that was pretty cool, actually. Again, there wasn't a great deal to do there. But I was lucky enough to then move on from Namambar to go to a work camp. So the work camp was at in Warwick, which was in, you know, I think it's about a two and a half hour drive, three hour drive from the Gold Coast. But you had to be low security to go to the farm in the first place. Yes. And yeah. again, like you, there was no fences. We just had markings where we were allowed to go. And depending on what job you had at Namambar, the different coloured markings were where you could go, basically. It was actually pretty free. Like, we could go for a run of the morning. There was, like, we used to go for a run of the morning, a walk of an afternoon, you know, those type of things, because I was down at the farm in winter. So it was um, 
pretty cold early morning and pretty cold during the night. Yeah, we were pretty cold at Glen Ennis as well, but yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of like a different cold, isn't it? Like when you're at home and you've got your doona and you've got your own pillow and you can hop on your own couch, it's a different kind of cold being in prison. So did you uh, work at all in prison before you got to that working farm? So up at Brisbane Women, the industries, I guess, when I was there, this was five years ago, very archaic, and I don't think they have changed. Yep. So the in, the industries were basically quite focused on what would have previously been seen as women's roles in society and in family. Uh, so there was cooking, cleaning, <laughs> sewing, oh, that's and that's it. Ter- yeah, well, I, and I, I know what the prison system like. We've got the same prison system they set up back in, you know, the very early 1770s. Yeah, yeah, well, every, <laughs> even earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, because I um, I first went in to the prisons. I'd been sentenced, but they'd put me in the remand wing because I hadn't been classified yet at Tamworth. And I actually, I went in to reception and I played 20 questions with the receptionist, uh, the the reception guard. He was like, ah, do you smoke? Are you on methadone? Uh, Can can you read? And I was like, well, yes, I can (laughs) read and write. And he was like, oh, what's your highest level of education? And I said, bachelor's degree. And he was really taken back and as I found uh, out that was that was a bit uncommon in prison and he said straight away hold on I want to call someone and he, he called the education officer over he, on the phone and the education officer came down and he said oh this is Damien he has a bachelor's degree and the education officer said oh thank god I need a education assistant here you know can not only read and write but like a bit above that standard and yeah, I actually right. got offered a a job in prison on the first day which is quite unusual especially where I was at at Tamworth the population's only about 90 inmates it's it mostly operates as a holding pen to before you get sent off somewhere else uh, so there was only about six jobs in the prison and I got offered one on the first day, which actually caused some problems. A couple of people were a bit suspicious and, you know, I couldn't really <laughs> say, well, like, oh, well, how'd you get a job? Well, because I'm a lot smarter than you are. Like, you know, that, that wasn't going to go down well. But um, I got a <laughs> yeah. job there on the first day and that wasn't too bad in itself. I was helping out in the education department. I was like, basically, the, the only education that actually ran there was basic literacy, which wasn't helpful for me. I was just like binding books and stuff. The only thing that was really depressing was, I'm not sure what the allowance is in Queensland. Uh, and I was in prison about, it was six years ago as well. So um, yeah, my information's a little bit out of date. But at the time in New South Wales, it was $15.23 a week. And uh, which for everyone listening at home, that uh, that sounds pretty depressing. But then, you know, you keep in mind that like a phone call, a six minute phone call in prison costs you $2.20. So that $15 lasts a lot less than you think it would. I got offered this job in the education department and in exchange for working like a 35 hour week, my allowance went up to $23 something. Five years, I got like $1.30 a day. Yes, it was broken. Remind me, when you first went in, did you have a job before you went to that farm at all? Yeah, so you have to work. Yep. Mm -hmm. women, you can't not. Yeah, only if you're sick. So I think I went in there after spending a horrific seven days in the watch house, which was probably the worst part of my time. And so then it was actually like I couldn't wait to get to the actual jail because I hadn't seen sunlight for seven days. So I was like, get me out of here. I can't wait to get to jail. And then, you know, you go through the reception, all that kind of stuff. And then I think they gave me two days to settle in. And then it was like, right, you have to go to work now. 
okay, good. That's good because I'm sitting around here with no friends mm. watching all of these people thinking, what is going to happen to me now? Right. So yep. I, I was actually happy to, in the first instance, to get up and <laughs> go and do something. It was basically Lifeline sends clothes to the Brisbane Women's Prison and you have to cut out the zips, pockets, um, tags, anything that might scratch a car because they turn them into rags and they sell them. Right, okay. So in essence, it's not a hard job. It's very mundane, very monotonous. Yeah. You're standing, you're just standing at a table with 20 other girls all facing each other, basically a big rectangle table, all facing each other with scissors chained to the table, obvious <laughs> reasons. And um, you're just cutting up these rags. That is it. You're just standing there and you work morning and then sometimes we would go back in the afternoons, but not all the time. There would be other things that might be happening in the afternoons. But for that, I think we got about $1.30 a day and maybe a little bit more than $1.30. It wasn't a great deal. And then a week we also got, and that was seven days a week. And then we also got an amenities allowance, which I think at the time was about $9. Wow. So seven, did you have to work seven days a week? Yes. At Brisbane oh. Women's, you had to work seven. Wow. Okay. That yeah. I'm I'm also surprised to learn that you had to work because I'm a, like I was sent to the working farm, but like it, they were calling out for volunteers. Like, who wants to go to the working farm? You have to work to stay there. And I was like, yeah, me, me, me. I, I'm 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 kind of bored here. I, I want to just see another prison if anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um. Like when people ask me about working in prison. That they ask if working's mandatory, and as I explained to them, like that there are working prisons for, for in men's. At most uh, prisons you go to, like they're literally, if everyone wanted to work, which everyone doesn't, there wouldn't be enough jobs to go around. Like I said, I was at, started at Tamworth, there was like 90 inmates there and, and like six jobs or something. And then on my way, I, I stayed in Cessnock for about a month, just waiting for the next transport truck as moving you around isn't a priority of theirs. I didn't work while I was there, but I mean, that prison had a, like a, an industry and stuff, like I think it was a wood shop, but there would have been several hundred inmates and maybe 50 positions. But then I got to, got to Glen Innes and yeah, you had to work to stay there. We only worked weekdays. You could work Saturday by choice if you wanted to, like they had like a voluntary muster. You, you turned up and if you wanted to work, you could. I think you got up $15 for working on a Saturday. And it was funny uh, how much our attitude uh, changed in there because um, during the week, like in the regular prisons, like the pay rate was like $1.30 a day, like uh, ridiculous. But um, And it's still ridiculous in the working prison. Like, But we were getting like, yeah, it was like, it, was, it worked out more like a dollar an hour, which was a massive jump up in prison. And then, but yeah, attitude to money changed so much. I remember a really good friend of mine, he got an unexpected visit on a Saturday and he was planning to work. He got to the visit and his friend was like, oh, you look a little bit annoyed. He's like, oh, look, no, no, I really appreciate you coming to visit. He's just, I was just saving up for something and now I'm missing out on $15. And, and, <laughs> and um, his friend was like, $15, that's all you get on Saturday? And that was the one that hit him because he'd been there for about three years. And he's like, oh, right, yeah, $15 a day is actually dreadful. But by prison standards, that's, that's actually a lot of money. Our prison at Glenis, where it was a lumber yard exactly. So basically, there were different teams, and we brought in logs, like massive tree logs, and then they'd be cut down to size. There'd be different teams working on cutting them all into different shapes and lengths, and then there'd be an assembly team at the end, which is where I actually started. I was there um, on the assembly team with a nail gun, which actually wasn't like chained to anything. So yeah, it's <laughs> kind of funny to hear that, that the scissors were chained up when, when they'd let us have nail guns. 
after a few weeks of that, that one of the clerks, uh, he got released and I got kind of handpicked as someone who was computer literate to step up and then I became one of the clerks and then it was my job to process all the other inmates' pay and again, I use that term pretty loosely. It's interesting to hear that, um, yeah, it's not only is it compulsory in, in women's, it's, it's um, yeah, seven days a week. Did many people protest? Like, were people angry about that, having to work oh, every no. day? No. No, it's supposed to give you something to do. It it did. And I think think it was actually important because Brisbane Women's, I mean, the job itself wasn't important, Mm. but at Brisbane Women's, because there was at that time no real remand for women prisoners who had just been sentenced, you would leave the the watch house and you would go to Brisbane Women's. And unless you were going to the farm, then that's the only place you would go. There's no other centre once you were processed as such. Now there is another one. Now there's Gatton. From what my understanding is, they use Brisbane Women's as a remand now and, um, and you know, where to go from here type thing. But at Brisbane Women's, so you had a, a vast variety of all types of people who had done all types of sentences. So different cultures, different everything, which is, you know, what happens at all prisons. But having to stay in these little clusters with nothing to do, you get trapped in your mind all the time. So I think that getting up and, and going to work every day, I think was really good in that aspect. But I just wish that there was other, so I wish there was other things that the women could have done other than the sewing and the cutting up of the rags and being a cleaner. Like there, there's more to women than that. Yes. So, you know, my, my inner th- feminist is actually angry now. It's like, well, what, what's next? Like uh, how to be a submissive housewife and, you know, uh, Oh, geez. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. But uh, I suppose Glenn Innes was a bit stereotypical as well. Like, you know, we to the lumber yard carrying tools and stuff. We had to sign out all the tools at the beginning of the day. Like one day at the end of the day, um, when they signed all the tools back in, a hammer was missing. Uh, yeah, and um, <laughs> like yeah, we're, we're, a lot of people have seen prison drama shows and like, you know, when something like that goes missing, it's a big deal. And the, the next day we were on lockdown they're like, we need to find this hammer. And they came around to our pods, people at home, like we didn't have cells. We lived in like, it looks like college dorms. There were like eight rooms and a yeah, common yeah, kitchen area and, and oh, not really a lounge room, but there was like a TV in there. I, I assume you had something a bit similar? Or? Uh, not at Prison Women's, but at the farm, yeah. Yep, yeah. So anyway, we, uh, they came to our pods one at a time and they're like, uh, we're going to stay on lockdown until we get the hammer back. And you won't be able to get out and exercise. You won't be able to call your family and rah, rah, rah. And the next day... Doesn't that go against, that go against all types of conventions? Well, a lot of things in prisons go against conventions <laughs> in my experience. But, uh, you know, who's, who's going to believe us? Yeah, what, what, what are we going to do? Write a letter to a mm. member of parliament? Yeah, I'm sure you'll put that right on, yeah, then high on their priorities list. But, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, we weren't surprised, though. They let us all out to work again the next day, even though they didn't get the hammer back. And... The whole prison revolved around like selling, as well as pallets for James Hardy, we also made those bags of firewood. You see it like service stations, hot shots firewood, I think it was. We had all these contracts with private corporations, as well as like processing all the pay. um, I had to distribute the milk for the morning tea breaks. And so I had to go to the overseer's office and collect the milk and then distribute it to like the eight different work teams. I remember I went to collect the milk one day and my overseer was sitting at his desk with his head in his hands and he looked miserable. 
we weren't exactly friends, but I didn't have a problem with him. And I was like, you're aware you have to call guards. Reminded me of primary school. Like you had to call it. Like, it was like Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or like, you know, for the, for the guards. And I said, Mr. Smith, what's that was actually his name. And I'm like, I'm like, are you, are you okay, Mr. Smith? He turned to me and he had this look of just resigned defeat. And he was like shaking his head. And he said, I can't make quota for James Hardy this month, even if none of the machines break down, which they frequently did. Even if I put everyone over to, on overtime, which they sometimes did, they offered you a little bit more money to work overtime. He's like, even if I put everyone on overtime, there's no way we can hit quota and I am in a world of crap. That really, in my experience, like sums up exactly what's wrong with the prison system because their priority wasn't rehabilitating us or making sure everyone learned how to read or had like a you know, skill set on the outside. It was selling timber to private companies. That, that was what the whole prison revolved around. And when this hammer went missing, they actually led us back to work after one day of lockdown. We knew they weren't going to keep us on lockdown because every day they kept us on lockdown was a day they were getting behind in all their orders. Yeah, right. I'm like, this is a circus. It's really unethical. It's essentially modern slavery. Like, not only were we getting a dollar and eight cents an hour, you know, there was... Well, you didn't have weekends, so I assume you didn't have, like, sick pay and, like, holiday pay and things like that? Um, well, we actually, we did get, if we were sick, we got paid a lower level, um, okay. but we had to be very sick. Like, I had a headache one day, and it was, I, I could feel it turning into a migraine. It was really, really bad, and this was still at Brisbane Women's. I tried to get Panadol, tried to get Panadol, tried to get Panadol, and I, I wasn't written up for Panadol because I hadn't seen the nurse as yet, so... You're not allowed to have Panadol unless you're written up by the nurse. So then yeah. I had to go up to the medical unit, try and see someone just to get written up for paracetamol. Like, it, it's just ridiculous. So then the migraine had already hit. I was vomiting. It was just horrendous. And this went on for about three days. And then once my migraine had cleared, I got written up for Panadol. Talking about healthcare in the prison, oh. that, that'd be a whole another podcast, I guess. Maybe we can even get you back for that. But um, that actually reminds me: if you couldn't work, they your pay dropped down to like the the basic, uh, you know, the fifteen dollars twenty or three a week. So you got pro rata for that. So you got like you know one seventh of that for for just being at the prison and not working if you were sick. Like I remember at one of my friends. His nickname was Cyclops, and we we called him this because he was missing an eye. Like I said, we had nail guns, inmates, a lot of them aboard and a lot of them, you know, oh, well, just any workplace. Yeah, this would probably <laughs> happen if they had lower socioeconomic men and nail guns. So they were setting up targets and they were doing target practice. They were shooting at these boards. <laughs> and so in order to do that, they had to, like, remove the safety device on the nail gun. Oh, and, gosh. Yeah, and uh, Cyclops did this and he accidentally shot himself in the hand. So the nail went through his hand. And yeah, incidentally, if I was missing an eye, I wouldn't play around with a nail gun like that. But that's just me. But uh, anyway, he put this nail through his hand and like he just said uh, it happened while he was working and, and he never got caught. Like, uh, yeah, he would have probably would have been like kicked out of the prison for that. He started panicking and not because he had a nail in his hand. He was panicking because it was a working prison. And in the men's system, it's actually quite sought after to go there. But you have to work there in order to stay. And so if you're too injured to work, you, you literally get kicked out. They're like, oh, you're, you're injured. You're gone. He was freaking out because uh, he had to go see the nurse and um, get all these medical appointments. And he t took about a week off work. So he, he lost a like, $35 paycheck, 
Thankfully, he got like the nail missed everything vital and uh, he was back on the assembly line in a week. The like kind of something that was always over our head. So not only were we not entitled to like actual sick pay or workers comp or anything, if we did get injured at work, uh, not only were we not going to get any compensation, they were going to kick us out. And I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, imagine having that in a in a workplace outside a prison. Like, I'm sorry, you you injured yourself. I mean, I get it. Like, he was he, completely his fault that he did it. But even if it hadn't have been, if equipment have had a malfunctioned, it still would have been the same principle. He would like, you know, well, you're fired for being injured. You tell people this, and they've got just got no idea like what it's actually like in there and the, the conditions and like, where we were working that lumberyard, if that had have existed on the outside, you would have needed a white card to work there. Like, uh, you didn't need, like, they didn't give us any training or anything. They just kind of, yeah, here's the nail gun, here's how it works. Yeah, uh, off you go. There was, like, the safety standards were, were just ridiculous. I'll, I'll tell you one story I had. The prison was getting audited one day. My overseer started panicking, and the reason he started panicking was because we were supposed to do daily safety checks on all the equipment we were using, the inmates didn't really want to do that and the guards didn't really want to do it either. So uh, it didn't get done very much. And we got audited and my different overseer uh, came up to me and he said, um, we're being audited, uh, so I need your help. We need to create like false entries to make it look like we've been doing these safety checks. <laughs> and so the two of us, we went into his office and we sat down and we um, you know, you know, frantically scrawled in like retroactive dates for these like fake safety checks. And at one point, it, again, another one of these surreal moments in prison, like he actually turned to me and he said, this is called fraud. I think you can go to prison for, for this. <laughs> and I, like, yeah. And, uh... Yes, it was broken. Anything like particularly unethical or any like really unusual things that happen when at your workplace? Or look, I don't think unethical. Probably no. I, I can probably safely say not unethical. Unsafe, yes, mm-hmm. uh, definitely that. So when you go from Namambar, or when I went from Namambar to the to the work farm to the work camp, that was probably the best part of my sentence. Mm-hmm. So you would still stay at Bar, but you would go to the work camp for two weeks. You would come back for two weeks and then you'd go again. So it was two and two basically like, you know, you're working fly-in, fly-out, but, you know, like that type of thing. So when you went out to Warwick, you would do things like there would be lots of mowing for the council. You would go and do the cleaning for local RSLs. You would go to the Lawn Bowls Club and you would maybe, maybe if they were having a function, the oldies were maybe having their awards day or something, you'd go clean up, you'd make their sandwiches, you'd make them a cup of teas, you'd look after them during the day, that type of thing. So they were pretty basic, easy things to do. But there's two events a year that you, that the Warwick Work Farm looks after and one of them is the Warwick Rodeo and the other one is the, it's like a, it's called the, uh, like a uh, little town out west. They shut the town down for the weekend and they have like a little race around the town. So cars come from all around, all around Australia to come to this little town. So, you know, the the girls, they cook for it, they man a a meal stand and they set it up during the week prior to that weekend. So you're going around and you're putting like star pickets in the ground and and you're like literally, have you ever seen one of those star pickets I don't know, bangerinners, so to speak. Um, I don't know what they're called, but they're like you hold you hold them with two hands and you, you put them over the topic and you bang them down. Yes, yeah, no, I, I had to do I used to be in the army before I was in prison and I, I remember okay. having to do that quite a few times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
one of my sisters before I actually went to prison said, Courtney, I don't know how you go to cope because you weren't built for physical labor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and I really wasn't. So this was a very, um, it was a, an awakening for me, so to speak. But um, so I was with this other friend. We were on the work camp together and she was very tiny. So I'm about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, and she was all of maybe 5 foot. So she's mm. tiny. So for me, putting these star pickets in was okay. Once, once you get the hang of it, you lift up and you're banging down. But she's quite tiny. So it was more difficult for her. I could see her getting frustrated with putting these star pickets in and hers weren't going in straight because she just couldn't get that leverage. Right, yep. Yeah, the picket was probably bigger than her. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then she had to like reach right up, you know, to put the thing over it. It was getting frustrated for her. I walked over to her and I'm like, you're all right, mate. And just as I said that, she said some expletives and she was trying to rip the star picket back out because it wasn't in right. And as she, as I just as I got to her, the star picket would come out, come loose from the ground. And because she was so frustrated and angry, she had all of her weight behind it. And it literally hit her under her jaw and it split her right open. It was horrible. There was blood everywhere. And I'm like, oh, God, this is not good because it looked really, really bad. So she ended up with stitches, but that was probably the worst thing that happened. But we didn't get any, we didn't have anyone with us. We didn't really have anyone, any training as such. But yeah, we did have, um, we did have like the sponsors of, of the different jobs with us and, and they did, they showed us. But like, I guess, you know, we hadn't done this before. Mm. We were, you know, women who worked in um, white collar all of our lives. Right. We didn't know how to, we didn't know how to put star pickets in or really, what to do and the frustration was was real because it was like maybe we were a little bit embarrassed because we couldn't do it properly at times I felt like you know because I'm quite educated out here in the real world like they were really taken back when they found out I had a bachelor's degree but then they were like there were things in prison like I just I, I, I just didn't know like, and, and uh, like there was part of that like um, I hadn't really used tools before as well but then even just little things like a guy came up to me he's like oh oh man you got you got any series and I'm like I don't, I don't know what that is. And he's like, hysterical. It's a, it's a, it's a sleeping tablet. I'm like, no, where would I get those from? And I'm like, quite, my, my prison IQ was quite low when, when I went in. Like, I mean, I didn't find it too hard because I'd been in the army and the army's harder than prison in my experience. That says more about the military than it does about prison. Yeah, there was definitely things I, um, I, I struggled, like learning, learning the language and, and, and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, well, I think in prison IQ, I would have been in the negative. Right. Um, definitely would have been in the negative. But there was only other one other incident and where, where you live um, when you go onto the work farm, it's actually quite a beautiful old Queenslander home and then so that's where your kitchen and the lounge room and the washing machine and all of that kind of stuff. And there's a couple of bedrooms up, up in the house, but most of the time you didn't really choose those bedrooms because downstairs there was like a like an annex, I would say, and there was like maybe eight dongers and then there was the officer's donger down there as well and she had her own bathroom and we all shared a bathroom down there. But that was kind of the place where you wanted to be because there was like a, a big, um, like an entertainment area. There was like a, I think there was a pool table at one time, there was a ping pong table and, yeah. and because we, you know, you could go into your room and read a book or whatever if you, if you weren't working or you could easily come out and know that someone else was down there you know, hanging out. So it was kind of like a good area to be. Mm-hmm. But that was, so the old Queenslander, it needed to be like cleaned up, painted and sanded and things like that. So when 
I think it was on my first trip out there, and I had never held a grinder in my life. Bear that in mind. Well, I so, haven't to this day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm this person who's never had really had any sort of tools before, working physically hard in my life. So I'm up on this scaffolding, mm-hmm. and the I think he was about seventy. The guy who was showing us what to do, and he's like, "All right, so we had to take." the guard off so you could really get in and, and sand and it was a nine inch grinder so I don't even think that they sell nine inch grinders anymore because of how dangerous they are right. anyway mm. we're using these and standing and I'm like holy hell like my whole body was shaking my arms were going numb and it, every time it hit like a little bit of a knot in the wood it would jump and I was that rigid because I didn't want to fall off the scaffolding and our whole bodies were so tense from being so rigid all day that we just could hardly move at night time but there was no incident with that thank gosh because that could have been really bad yeah well that sounds like an accident waiting to happen like like likewise we had it there was part of the um crew we had like one it was one guy's job. I think there was two of them actually. They they were the chainsaw operators. So yeah, like you know, people like you had hammers in prison. Like, no, we had chainsaws. Granted, only two of them, but I mean, yeah, yeah. It just it, people really just you know because you you watch the prison shows and they're like making shivs out of pieces of plastic and stuff. We weren't allowed to have certain things. Like I I taught myself how to draw in prison, and that there was no ruler on on buy up. Uh, on what you know, you, what you can order in in prison because it's too easy to turn something like that into a shiv, and they haven't really figured. Like, I don't think it's higher on their priorities list to figure out that you can get ones that you know they're made out of like bendy plastic. But uh, yeah, we I couldn't get a ruler, which yeah. made it really <laughs> frustrating to draw. But yet, uh, yet I have access to like hammers and chainsaws at work. But a ruler, no, no, that's that that's off limits. That's dangerous and. Yeah, yeah there, it's as you, crazy. Yeah, like think a lot of things just don't make sense in there at all. Everybody wanted to get to there, and I think that that really is a positive point because you, you know, you all have dinner together the night before. That's where you get where you're working the next day. You then, you know, you go to bed, and then the next morning you have to get up, you have to make your lunch, you have to get ready for work, and it really is. You know, but some of these some of these women have never had a job in their life mm, yeah. at all, and they're you know in their thirties of an in and out of prison, and then all of a sudden they're finding that they've got responsibility. They're finding that they actually are making a difference, and they can make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is really really important, and I would hate to see that the work farms disappear, because I know in Queensland for the men, some of them have shut down, right. um, and I know that it's really important. For the women, definitely. The work farm was a little bit annoying. I mean, I uh, because I had things I wanted to do. Like I taught myself how to draw in prison. I wrote a novel which has since been published, and I, like I couldn't wait to get locked in at night for work to end, for us to get locked in, so I could get back to writing. But I, I definitely could see that there were people who there who hadn't had a job before, and they were finally getting, even, you know, even though the, the prison didn't really care about them personally, that it was all just about making money. They were getting a sense of routine for the first time, and so overall. The, the working farm definitely wasn't a bad thing. It's just it's just a real shame that there weren't like other opportunities for, for people who who aren't necessarily suited for that. Yeah, I completely understand yeah. what you're saying. But, um. Yeah. The other thing about Namunbar was that people could do their year 10 or, or you know, the people who hadn't actually finished high school and then you could go on and do your TPP, but there was no one actually to help anyone get through it. So it's all well and good to say, all right, here you go, here's your, your course material yeah. to do your year 10, for, for example. One of my friends who I made at Namunbar, I actually, of an afternoon after working in the morning, we would go down to one of the sheds 
and we would sit and I helped her through her year 10 and she continued that when she was released and now she's at uni. So, But she wouldn't have been able to go through that had she not had girls helping her through it because the prison certainly didn't. No, well, we had a, one guy at our prison. He Because uh, uh, when I got sent to Glen Innes, at the time, they only ran forklift and chainsaw courses. And the only reason they ran those was because um, you the, some of the jobs needed those to work out. Yeah, it wasn't about uh, skilling up inmates. It was it was about you know keeping the, the production line moving. When I first got there, they didn't have any education at all. And you couldn't study by correspondence either. And eventually, they opened up Statement of Attainment in, in IT. But not only was there not anyone to help, but we uh, we couldn't get like even study at all. There were there were different prisons where you could, but yeah, there was just really poor education there. Okay. So yeah, definitely like um, it it boggles your mind really. Like yeah, like I said, like yeah, you know, the priority of the prison was filling orders for James Hardy. If the priority for prison was making sure people finished their high school equivalency, so maybe they could get a job and not fall into a cycle of reoffending. Maybe the reoffending rate would be a lot lower, but that's unfortunately how it is. And oh. uh, and then Damien, there, there would be no need for so many prosecutors and lawyers and judges and and that kind of thing. So we have to, you know, keep that in check too. Yes, it's it's a big horrible <laughs> lumbering machine, and uh, yeah, isn't and, it? Yep, yeah. Thanks very much for being our um, first person on our podcast. It's been uh, really great talking to you. Mm, thanks for having me on. But she was no more broken than a spear with a chipped blade. Marks like those were signs of signs of strength. Thanks for listening to Broken Chains. Broken Chains is hosted by myself, Damien Lenane, and is produced by Newcastle Libraries. Music is provided by Louisa Magrix. Check out more of her work at soundcloud.com forward slash music LXM. Signs of strength. Signs of strength. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production. As a companion to this podcast series, the exhibition of Broken Chains, Prisoners Unlocking Potential, is available to view until the 7th of November 2021. You can experience this exhibition either online through the Newcastle Libraries website or in person at Walls End Library. COVID health orders and restrictions may affect access across our branches, so please check before planning your visit. Links to the exhibition and research for the topics discussed in this episode are in the show notes.